thanks for pressing play. How does the United States military provide care for critically ill newborns in remote locations that don't have access to nearby ICU care in the host country? What is the makeup of a military neonatal transport team, and how do they train and carry out real-world missions across the globe? Stick around and find out. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Dr. Joshua Anshin is an active duty Air Force pediatrician with fellowship training in neonatal and perinatal medicine. He is the neonatal transport director at the U.S. Naval Hospital in Okinawa, Japan. In this episode, Josh describes the history, roles, and training of military neonatal transport teams. He also provides examples of recent mission scenarios and provides lessons learned that will improve future capabilities of critical care transport across the military health system. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Dr. Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome Air Force Major Dr. Joss Anchin to Wardocs. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Hey, yeah, it's great to be with here. Thank you for having me. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about neonatal transport in the military. Tell us a little about the history of neonatal transport and how the military has used that in the past. It's actually really interesting because the field of neonatology is so new, and so I'm not sure how well your listeners are familiar, but in 1963, John F. Kennedy Jr. actually had a son that was born at 34 weeks. The baby was born in Massachusetts at an Air Force base, actually Otis Air Force Base, which is now closed, but had respiratory distress syndrome and ended up being transferred to Boston Children's Hospital. Probably had the finest team of doctors of the time, and that baby died within two days. And so they just didn't have the technology back then. And this is within the lifetime of many of our parents, no surfactant, no neonatal ventilators. And so that's really the thing that kind of spurred public and medical awareness about the need for neonatal intensive care. And so only two years later, in 1965, the first American NICU was established at Yale. And in 1975, which is not that long ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics sort of established neonatology as a subspecialty. Not long after that, you have this kind of dilemma, right? When you have American service members in all of these places, in Europe, in Asia, you have to be able to provide an American standard of care for their families. And so in 1982, the Air Force established an eight to 10 bed NICU at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, and actually also a NICU at Landstuhl in Germany, which still exists also. And so this way, like any baby that's born in PACF in Europe that requires NICU care that can't be supported locally, a team can now go pick them up and get them to that level of care. And so this mission throughout time has continued to evolve and change, as you can imagine. So in the 1980s, really through the early 2000s, the host nation NICUs really could not be relied on to provide any kind of standard of care comparable to the US. So teams were going more frequently picking up babies sooner, premature babies, sick babies, almost as soon as they were born or outside of kind of the, the brain hemorrhage window for preterm babies. But in the last 10 years or so, that's really changed more. And 
most places in Japan, Korea, places in the Pacific do offer a similar standard of care. And so one other thing that I'll mention is that the Air Force actually was a significant pioneer in transport ECMO for neonates. And so this is... So can, can you explain just real briefly what that is, what ECMO stands for? Yeah. So extracorporeal membranous oxygenation, which is basically like a bypass for the lungs and potentially the heart where babies with very, very severe lung disease, we just need to give their lungs rest. And so they kind of get cannulated in their carotid or internal jugular veins. And essentially you run all the blood through a completely different device. It's very involved, very effective when, when done appropriately, but very involved and something that basically no one has really ever done transpacific until the Air Force started doing it in the early 2000s. And um, so they were really, really the ha- held records really for the, like the longest ECMO transports with neonates. They send a team from San Antonio, pick up a surgeon along the way, fly across the ocean to Okinawa, cannulate babies and then fly them back on an ECMO circuit, which is just incredible. But again, as things have evolved and local areas have the capacity to do ECMO, that mission hasn't been required anymore. And I know a lot of the adult folks at BAMC are now doing Trans-Pacific ECMO, but it's very interesting. Like still to this day, there aren't Trans-Pacific ECMO teams that exist, something that the Air Force was doing at the turn of the century. So very interesting. So if the host nations are catching up in technology, and this is not required as much, where are the current patients coming from that you're using on the the neonatal transport technology? And is it just beneficiaries or is it other patients? Right. So mostly beneficiaries. And I would say that the current patients we transport fall into one of three categories. So neonates with complex medical problems that will require ongoing care, genetic syndromes, Congenital heart disease is a big one, uh, neurosurgical condition, conditions where they might have some resources locally, but you really want that person, that baby getting an American standard of care and be able to follow up with the physician long term rather than having just like an emergency procedure done and then that getting lost in translation or them using equipment that we don't use. So that's one category. The other category is babies that have ongoing medical needs like home oxygen, or still working on feeding as they're getting ready to go home, maybe need a G-tube evaluation. Home health resources are very limited in Oconus, and so those infants require transport stateside. And then the third one, I think, is kind of the most pressing issue of our time right now is Guam, which is very different. So Guam had a civilian NICU as late as like 2021 with one neonatologist basically working there all of the time. And that neonatologist eventually left and left the island essentially without a NICU. And so it was also discovered that that hospital had lost accreditation, had multiple issues kind of through different international hospital bodies that go and evaluate hospitals where this really was not like an American standard of care. And so as DHA is trying to figure out a long-term solution, the current solution is that Guam Naval Hospital has a capability of basically stabilizing babies until our neonatal transport team in Okinawa can come and pick them up and either take them to Okinawa or elsewhere. So that's kind of the three categories of babies that we're picking up nowadays. In terms of where they come from, so order of most common, Okinawa is the poorest prefecture in Japan. And so the care often does not mirror 
US standards. So there's most often we're transporting from here. Guam has kind of become a close second. And then mainland Japan and Korea are going to be less less common. And that's going to be those kind of more complex congenital syndromes, congenital heart disease, where they really would do better in the hands of a specialized American center. We do about 30 missions a year. And what's interesting and unique, even compared to any other team that exists, is that our mission generally lasts an average over 5,000 miles and involve over 20 hours of patient care. And so there's really no current, like even civilian capability that's comparable. And we can be ready really within six hours, just dependent on aircraft availability more than anything else. And just one last thing that I'll mention that's kind of unique is that we're not just a dedicated transport team. So we're a unit-based team, meaning that we staff at an eight-bed NICU, but when called upon, like we have team members trained that do this transport mission throughout PACF. So how does that relate to the military's wartime mission? Are we seeing a need for any neonatal transport or do the skills translate to something else? I think we all know that the Western Pacific is strategically very important right now in the world. And as the military refines resources in, in this region, Marines are moved around, pilots are moving around. All a company service members still need to have comfort in knowing that their families are going to be taken care of. And that's really what we provide. And I think that's the more, most important mission and why we exist. There have been kind of some unique and rare situations that I think is really our vision to, to also be a part of is that any baby of, of U.S. interest, we want to maintain a capability that we can go pick them up anywhere in the world and get them to the level of care that they need. So that goes back as far as there, there are documented stories of the 1980s a team flew in the helicopter on top of the, the U.S. Embassy in Manila to get a recently born baby that uh, that had issues, believe it or not, while there was apparently infighting in the streets during military coup. Also in the 80s, there's stories of a team flying along the Himalayas uh, to get a baby in Nepal. More recently, as, as recently as kind of the last year or two, with the Afghan refugees, it made kind of popular news that a Germany team was involved with a preterm infant that was born on a flight. And there was also an infant with the last wave of refugees that was in a NICU in Bahrain that needed transport. And so while we aren't directly taking care of like the service members themselves, kind of falls outside of our age group. It's still, I think, a really like critically vital mission. So when you guys get spun up, who actually is on the transport team? And what are the capabilities in that, that airlift transport comparing to, let's say, a standard care brick and mortar facility in the United States at NICU? Yeah, so our team is interesting. So variation with some variation globally, but basically one neonatologist, one NICU nurse, and then one what they're calling respiratory care practitioner or respiratory therapist. Here in Okinawa, currently we don't have respiratory therapists and it's just because of the overall staffing like worldwide, but we use medical technicians and we train to kind of manage the equipment. What's interesting is that nowadays you can do almost anything that you could in a NICU on a transport. So we have a basically, we call it a neonatal transport system or NTS. It's basically a NICU on wheels. It has monitors that are going to be able to monitor everything on the baby, 
including like a defibrillator ventilators that can't exactly aren't as sophisticated as ventilators in the unit, but can actually do incredible things. And they've improved over the last 20 years. There are other capabilities very specific to neonates. So inhaled nitric oxide is a big one for pulmonary hypertension, which can be very severe in babies that singly in Okinawa, we don't have it because there's a problem moving it across international lines, but the, the transport team in Hawaii maintains that capability. High frequency ventilation, we can also do in the air. And so when you look at like drips, fluids, arterial blood pressure monitoring, all of this we can do in the air. And so it's pretty incredible. What is the footprint of this NICU on wheels, can it fit in any aircraft or do you need a certain size aircraft to to make it work? The current system that we use has not really had too many updates as far as like the overall appearance of it. It's kind of like on a cart system and is past safe to fly because it needs to go into an ambulance, needs to be secured in a military aircraft. And so this one is not so versatile. It can just be taken anywhere. It's about the size of a shopping cart, but weighs like 350 pounds. We here in Okinawa are actually working on sort of what we believe will be the next generation of neonatal transport system for the Air Force. And essentially it attaches, detaches from a striker bed, which that exists and has existed for a long time in the civilian community. But we've had the manufacturer basically fit them with extensions that allow it to that can be added on that allow it to sit in a litter stanchion. So it can be carried and sit in a litter stanchion for flight in an ambulance. Anywhere you can put a litter, you would be able to put this neonatal transport system and it has its own detachable wheel. So when you don't have a striker bed, you can move it around wherever it needs to go. And so this really will be like the most versatile system that exists in the world, like military or civilian which is pretty exciting to be a part of. So that's in terms of like the NTS footprint. And then usually it's just a Pelican case with a couple of extra like air tanks and a large black transport supply bag that has everything else that we need. And so it's a relatively small footprint. Can't put the NTS on a commercial airliner, but with this new one, it would, it would be able to really go into anything. You mentioned that you have averaged about a 30 real world mission number in the past several years. How do you make sure that the team is competent and comfortable taking care of these very complex missions when you don't have that much opportunity to, to do real missions? Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a very important question that we are still uh, working on creating an optimized solution. So currently what the requirements are is that all members have to have at least six months of experience working in, in the NICU. And then locally, each transport unit has their own kind of two-day course that goes over aerospace physiology, things specific for flight and some flight training in the aircraft that are locally used. With that, we are actively trying to create an Air Force directive, and it may turn into a DHA directive to standardize all of these processes. Because what we have realized is that in the age of DHA, the need for neonatal transport, it's really important that we preserve that because it's still critical in many parts of the world. And so just as other medical teams have kind of a centralized course or you have a centralized course before deployment, we're actively engaged in talking to, in creating basically like a NICU air transport curriculum that would be centralized that anyone who is part of the mission here or anywhere else in the world would go. And so that's also kind of exciting to be a part of that we've just kind of 
established in the, next, in the last year or so. I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with seeing pictures of tiny, tiny neonates in a NICU in America or around the world. But not many can picture what happens on an aircraft. Are there any particular environmental limitations in that aircraft or on an airplane scenario that it's really different that takes some specific training to understand and cope with? Yes, absolutely. So the main one is that I can explain as simple as when you get to altitude, if you're needing a certain amount of oxygen on the ground, you're going to need more oxygen in the air. And so hypoxia is a, is a big thing that we also, as healthy adults, will endure as we get to altitude. Babies with lung disease are going to be even more, more prone to that. So that's one thing just with aerospace physiology. But our babies are also extremely labile. And so the big thing about NICU care is if you remember any of the physicians remember from either their medical school or pediatric rotations, if you happen to have been in a NICU, is we like to leave them alone and just keep them comfortable, calm in that incubator, if you can recall, and not mess with. And flight is the exact opposite of that. So noise, vibration can lead to significant decompensation in the babies. And so we have little earmuffs and double-walled isolettes to try to help with that high risk of extubation. So the most critical thing in a baby a lot of times is their, their airways are, you know, millimeters wide. And so we don't want to lose an airway, but there's high risk of that anytime you're moving a baby and the way that we position babies when they're on transport. And then for our, our little premature babies, there's risk of head bleeds because they they have such developing friable areas of vasculature in their brain that especially in that first week of life, when they're being moved, there's a risk of intracranial hemorrhage. And so those are all things that we have to really think about. But of course, oxygen. There's also the side fact of in the NICU, it's kind of our home turf. And like, if we need to do procedures on the baby, like they're so tiny, like we need to like position ourselves and have the adequate lighting and everything that we need. In a lot of these military aircraft that we fly in, it's temperature instability, it's cold. And so there's a lot of factors that go into flying that, that make it different and more challenging. Now, are there medical attendants or the parents or somebody coming along with the team on the aircraft during these transports? Yes. So we typically fly with an aerovac crew. And so that is Air Force maintained program with typically nurses and medical technicians that are designed to take care of kind of the walking wounded, if you will. But they're there to assist with setting up the aircraft. And they're really like the experts of like aircraft. And the parents typically are able to fly with us unless it's for some reason a, a real big emergency and, and one parent isn't able to come. But usually there is a parent with us. You've been doing this for several years now, and I'm sure that you have some interesting stories or experiences during your time. Are there any stories that are memorable to you that you're willing to share? So I think that Two, two that really stick out as you ask that question. One is actually not transport, but just the lack of ability to transport sometimes. So kind of my first week on service in Okinawa, we had 23-week baby, so very tiny. We're talking, you know, like think about like a one-pound baby that was on high-frequency, multiple drips, very sick, but like doing okay. And all of a sudden developed a spontaneous intestinal perforation, which is something that happens in these little tiny ones. And in the United States, that would mean, hey, we need to get this baby to a surgeon. 
And so in that situation, we don't have pediatric surgeons at the Naval Hospital. And so we called locally thinking like, okay, yeah, like they'll maybe be able to do something. And the response was like, no, this baby is too small for us and nothing we can do. And this baby wasn't the size or stable enough to fly. And it just makes you realize that like, okay, I'm not in the United States. I'm not in the ivory tower anymore. And it just creates so much more value for the ones that you are able to get to that higher level of care. But that baby, unfortunately, ended up transitioning to comfort care and, and passed. But that's one that really sticks out in my first week here. I was just like, okay, I'm I'm not in the United States anymore. But as far as actual transport, so also one of my early missions, there was a baby in Guam. This is when they still had a NICU there. And so a week old came in with just a bad infectious meningoencephalitis with hydrocephalus. Um, and they ended up putting its external ventricular drain in this baby, which is not something that we ever see or do in neonates, just very high risk of infection. Typically, there are other ways that you can evacuate CSF and, and manage this issue. We just, we don't see external ventricular drains in babies. So it's already kind of a unique situation. We get to the aircraft, it's like 85 degrees, which in Okinawa feels like 100 degrees with the humidity and just sweating through our clothes. We get into the air in a KC-135, which is a refueling aircraft. So these are the ones you see within the pictures of like, oh, it's refueling a fighter jet. So they typically keep the aircraft like very cold. And so I just remember all of our sweat just like freezing to our bodies. The, and then we told the air front end crew for this baby, when we pick up the baby, because we we're flying from Okinawa to Guam to pick up the baby, like it's going to need to be a better temperature. And so like, within 30 minutes, like, I guess they cranked up the heat and then we're like sweating like again. And I think that the NTS, the neonatal transport system at one point, like the temperature read 102 degrees or something like that. And uh, so just wild. But we go to pick up this baby and never been to Guam before. We're thinking like, okay, American territory, like how bad can this be? And um, we enter the hospital and walking through and we see a door that says physical therapy with that, like taped over paper sign on it that says pick you. And it was probably like the size of like most people's like baby bedroom, like a master bedroom. And it had like multiple patients and we get there. And uh, we'd been told like baby has an IV. They actually had like a Broviac and we're like, who who put in a Broviac uh, in this baby like here in Guam? And we're like, oh, we have an interventional radiologist. And they like handed me this business card for this person that looked like a car, car salesman card, which is just, just many, many aspects of just this is just like, okay, like this is different, but very important for like babies with these tiny central lines because they're so prone to clotting that they need heparin in the line. They had just non-heparin running fluids there. So like, hey, we didn't bring heparinized fluids because we thought they had an IV. Can you guys prepare some? And they're like, oh, there's no physician here. Like, oh, they're like an hour away. And yeah, they're not going to come. They already discharged the baby. And we're like, well, like, this is important. Like, this line's going to clot. This is the only access the baby has. Like, our physicians don't like heparin. Almost like heparin was like a person to like not like or not like. We're like, no, no, we need this. We have to do this. And so... um, it was eye-opening in my first year here to have this kind of experience where like, wow, this is a very different standard of care. Parents, of course, like just so thankful that we were able to be there and, and get their child in that situation, I believe, to Hawaii to a neurosurgeon who was able to take out the EBD and the baby eventually got better and, and is doing well. 
So that one, I think, really sticks out. And then we had one situation where I think there's no documentation of ever this happening on another mission, but baby lost the airway in flight on a KC-135. So dark, noisy, not the ideal intubation conditions. And we had to do it. And it's very complex with this neonatal transport system having to basically take the top off, which we learned very quickly how to do with disconnecting all of the lines and everything to, to get access to the airway. But having to, to put in a new airway, not once, but twice on this flight with ventilator malfunctioning, suction malfunctioning. So we've had some very interesting, unique transports, I think, that, that will stick with me for a long time. But thankfully, all good outcomes from it. And uh, again, it's just really rewarding at the end to, to be able to look the, at the families and they're just thankful that where they were, they couldn't get the care and we can make magic happen and get them to a place where their baby can get taken care of. And so it's very, it's very rewarding. Reflecting on your lessons learned and looking into a crystal ball, what do you see as the future capabilities and outlook for neonatal military transport? Yeah, so I guess I'll break that up into, in terms of lessons learned out here as transport director, I think the two things that really come to mind is the need for modernizing technology and that even within the scope of the Air Force, there is room to kind of partner with industry to get the solutions you need. And so I mentioned kind of the, the new neonatal transport system. We had like an acute problem where the current system, most modern ambulances don't have uh, same connections that would even allow the system to get connected. So we either have to go to places and beg like, hey, we only we need this particular connection system. But if that doesn't happen, then we're almost out of luck or jury rigging something. And so we said like, hey, we have a secure problem. We need to fix it. And we've been able to be a part of that solution in a process that I haven't in a, I guess, technically 16 year military career. I haven't seen as much in terms of being able to innovate and partner with private industry to be able to do that. So I think that's just a really important thing for physicians out there in the military past, present, future, that you still want to be able to innovate for the, the best possible solutions for whatever your mission is. And then secondly, the need for codifying sort of the mission and what you do. And so we've always done for the last, I mentioned since the 80s, we've done neonatal transport in the Air Force and everyone's kind of just done it their own way, depending on what location you're at with some cross cross dock, it's a small community, but actually taking the step to like create a directive that says, this is how military Air Force transport will be done. This is the personnel this is the equipment, this is the training, this is the funding, especially in the age of DHA. I think that's that's very, very important to kind of preserve whatever mission that you're a part of while it's still critically important. And so that's kind of, I would say, the second lesson that I've learned here in terms of future capabilities and outlook. Being out here specifically, what I've come to understand is that military neonatal transport is unique. It's vital. And the highest levels of, of Air Force leadership want it to be preserved. The mission itself, just as it has in the last 30 years, will continue to evolve as global healthcare. But for the foreseeable future, at least, the need, particularly in GAF and some of these more austere places, remains. And our vision for it is to basically be able to pick up any baby of U.S. interest anywhere in the world and take it to a place that can provide the care that they need. We've been speaking with Dr. Josh Anshin on Warnock's podcast. Josh, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation. Great. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.